no, no. I got it. I got it. At this time, we'll dis dismiss our children, ages three to six, for Children's Church. Glenn has to give 10% more in his offering this month, so... Uh, one, one quick announcement, and then I want to invite up our guest speaker this morning. Uh, about 15 minutes after the service, we're going to have a brief congregational meeting uh, about our fiscal year. And uh, please, if you're a member, please stick around for that. And then after the vote, we're going to have a Q&A for the bylaws revision for those who are interested in that. Uh, what do you say about uh, Bruce Martin? Bruce Martin is our district superintendent, uh, which means he oversees the churches in western Washington, Oregon, and Alaska. And Bruce loves the Pacific Northwest. He loves the churches in the Pacific Northwest, and I really appreciate that about him and about the leadership he gives to our district. And um, to demonstrate that, I have to tell this story. Uh, last time we had a district conference, some of us young bucks who um, were just excited not to have any children in the same area where we were sleeping, um, all of us had toddlers and young kids. Um, after the last session of the night, which was pretty late itself, uh, we were still ready to go because we didn't have to wake up to children. And... Um, and so we were going to go out, and Bruce came with us, <laughs> even though he could have gone to his hotel room and gotten more nights, uh, more hours of sleep. Uh, but he did that because he cares about the pastors in our district and about their churches. And uh, so I'm excited to hear what he says to us uh, from God's word this morning. So we please uh, welcome Bruce Martin. That, that was amazingly kind. Oh, is he nice to him? Uh, no, no, you're all, you're all done. You're all done. I, I didn't hear what you just said, and I, and I don't even want you to repeat it. I'm in a bad, bad mood this morning. I, I, I agreed almost a year ago, there's this annoying man at United Church in Seattle who's a, uh, well, he's just a difficult individual, mostly because he's a Nebraska Cornhuskers fan, <laughs> and, and we've been jamming each other back and forth for the better part of a year, because there's this, this two-year thing going on. Next year, the, the Huskers will come and, and play at Autzen Stadium in Eugene, but man, I dished on him all year long. And not only him, man, I had, I had texts going out to every Husker believer that I knew around the country, and I was just like, get ready. Get ready. It's going down before 90,000 fans. And so I ate a little bit of crow yesterday. Holy cow, you, you start to see how unkind people can be. <laughs> anyway, enough of that nonsense. It's only a game, right? There's a lot more serious stuff in this journey of life. <laughs> there you go. What have I started? What have I started? Anyway, my name is Bruce. I live in Eugene, Oregon, if, if you hadn't figured that out. Is it all right if I stand down here on the floor? Can you see me? Can you hear me? 
I have a wife, Heather. We've been married for 35 years. And uh, it is an amazing journey of God's mercy and grace and redemption. We, we both got launched out of um, pretty unhealthy families. And, uh, you know, we were, we were both missing some pieces. And uh, yet we've made it work um, somehow. And it has an awful lot to do with a new way of living life that we discovered in Jesus, right? Um, in this role, which I actually, it came to me, this thing, I didn't aspire to this role. I, I was really glad to be pastoring the church in Eugene. I really missed the, the grittiness, uh, is that the right word, of like being with a, a group of people regularly, and being known by them and knowing them well and understanding the nature of the struggles and the things that have formed their lives, what they're trying to overcome and what they are aspiring to. I love that kind of stuff and to kind of be that, that presence that believes when people find it difficult to believe and offers a word of encouragement or from a place of having been down the road a little bit to say, come on, we can do this and here's a story that will help encourage you. I do miss that. And, and when I found myself in this role, I was kind of angry at God. Can you do that? It wasn't short term. It was for about two and a half years. Right? I was just kind of having a, a long-term fit. And, and I found myself kind of like, you know how the book of Jonah ends? Right? It's just this like abrupt. It's, it's like a, a runner doing the 100-yard dash and hits a wall at the end. Right, they're just like boom. Come on, there's got to be another chapter because the end of, of Jonah is is Jonah sitting under the tree, like fuming. If you were a cartoon, you know, kind of person, you draw a little dark cloud over his head, like this, and he's just got a grumpy spirit. And that's kind of how I saw myself for a couple of years because I, you know, I thought, yeah, Lee, man, I knew if I surrendered to you, you'd do something like this to me. Because honestly, I do not understand the politics that happen in the journey of religious uh, institutions. I think politics has absolutely nothing to do with the Jesus spirituality that I understand. Politics is about gaining advantage. It's about... Um, developing a quorum. Uh, it's about might makes right. Right? And the way of Jesus is anything but that. It's a very opposite trajectory. But I find myself, honestly, as, as I'm working with churches and as I'm working sometimes with the national team, just like feeling like, geez, Bruce, you didn't get the memo on how to do this. Because, like, I think when people ask me for my opinion, I'm kind of naive enough to think that's what they want. <laughs> right? And then sometimes I do that, and, and the room goes deathly quiet, and all eyes look at me like, wow, you just don't understand, do you? Right? So that's a little bit about me. Maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. I don't know. As I'm doing this role... I find myself in a strange place. When I left Dallas Seminary about 25 years ago, it was a bit of a career change for me. Um, 
Maybe it was a step up. I was a toilet paper salesman before I went to seminary, right? <laughs> Which is like marvelous. It's not hard to sell toilet paper, right? Pretty, pretty constant in our culture, right? But I was like this, uh, this final word from Dallas Seminary that, that was intended to inspire us. And, and it was like throughout our culture there is a, a famine for the word of God. And if you'll only preach faithfully the word of God, you'll never lack congregation. You'll never lack people who are wanting to hear that. Right? And as I wake up in the midst of this cultural reality in which I find myself, I want to ask, what were you guys thinking? Right, because the world that I live in, um, the people that I interact with, they, they, don't, uh, they don't start with any sense of uh, valuing the Word of God, the Bible, in a unique way. Uh, other than that it's, a, it's part of a stream of spiritual understanding along with many other streams that have been important in shaping the way people do spirituality. Um, so, so I look at the, the world in which I live, and I, and I frankly, I mean, I'm, I'll just get this out of my system early so I don't bring you down. But I, I frankly see our churches, not just our churches, but the church in general, graying out. And uh, if you're in that 25 to 30, 35 age group and you're in church regularly, you know, you know I don't have to tell you, you're, you're quite unique amongst your peers. But there's this, this thing that's happening where, honestly, people are staying away from the church by the droves, which is a head-scratcher for me. Because uh, in the early days of the church, a, a group of 120 people, not much more than what's gathered here, um, through the, the leading of the Holy Spirit and the boldness of their lives, they, they changed the known world in their day. A massive, massive, massive movement whose mark still continues to our day. So I'm curious why in our culture things have ground down to such a, a strange place. And I, I'm, I wonder about it because Jesus has not changed. Uh, as we've sung this morning, Jesus is um, alive. He is a resurrected Lord and he is the Lord of the church. Um, even people that I speak with in the culture of Eugene, which is kind of the Berkeley of the Northwest, right? When I talk with them about the, the influence of their lives, I never get anybody arguing with me or reactive with me about how compelling Jesus is. Um, most of the time, people get a little bit reactive with me when I begin to try to connect Jesus to the church. Right? And so that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. Um, be forewarned. You know, a good friend of mine who knows me well gave me a little metal badge years and years ago. It's kind of a twisted thing. It, I don't like clowns, and she knows this. But there's this, there's this 
perverse clown on this little badge, and, and there's a little byline underneath it that says, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable, right? <laughs> and she knows me, and she says, just in case you're confused, you're the latter, not the former, and I think that's why our Father has kind of moved me into this role. Because it, it is a kind of gifting that I carry that says, uh, let's, not, let's not become complacent. Let's look honestly at what we're up against. Let's consider the impact on our own lives. Let's, let's learn and relearn. And if we have to, let's unlearn some things that have kind of created this quandary that we're facing in which the church has become quite ostracized from the culture. Uh, so let me, that's my, my heart this morning, is not to just name the problem, but, but try to create some understanding about where, where do we go from here, because um, look, if, if I were selling, um, what did that used to be? We used to call them dial-up modems and nobody was buying, well, that's a no-brainer, right? Because they're, they're a pretty useless commodity in the day of high-speed Internet. But that's not what we're doing. We are representing the One, capital O, One, who explains the most meaningful spirituality any human being can pursue. He is timeless, the same yesterday, the same today, the same tomorrow. So if, if something has changed, it's not Jesus. He's not the one who has changed. Right? So my style is not to get lost in the, in the complexities of it. I kind of, you know, I appreciate when people put the cookies on the bottom shelf. So I'm, I'm not complicated in my, in my message, in my, in my focus, but I... I do appreciate the value of a kind of simplicity that brings clarity because clarity is the thing that contributes to our effectiveness, not complication. Right? So it's out of that that I want to just say that the, the heart of Jesus from Matthew 28, the, the whole goal, if we were to say to somebody in the community on Whidbey Island, what, what is the purpose? Why do you guys gather? Right? The, the point of it is to prepare people so that according to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that as you go, as you go, you are imparting a Jesus spirituality in every pocket that you participate in. It's, it's not a command to go like a general gives orders for an army or a soldier to go here and go there and do this and do that. It's not that. It's to help you find your way through a new way of living as a human being that's based in Jesus, that finds hope in Jesus, that finds life in Jesus. And that as you go, wherever you go, whether you're in your home, whether you're in a cubicle, whether you're on the farm, whether you're out on your sailboat, whether you're... It doesn't matter that you're just on the switch is just on. And it's an intentional thing that where I go, people see what a life looks like when it's 
led by Jesus, I am afraid that some of our patterns have left us with a really different picture in which people kind of become compartmentalized. You know what I mean by that? Uh, I mean, you're one person here or with your small group, and you're another person at home behind the four walls of your home, or you're another person in the marketplace. You know what I mean? Where we learn to nurture that kind of multiple identity deal. But isn't that crazy? My wife says, you know, um, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. <laughs> and here's this, here's this strange reality. It's like God has given you a life. I'm 60 years old. And I'm more aware at this season of my life than I ever have been of how transitory this life is. And I'm a bit troubled by that. Well, what can I do? <laughs> I can't stop the clock. But here's this deal. is like God has created you. He has given you this marvelous gift called life. He has created you uniquely and blessed you with unusual qualities and gifts. And somehow in the course of life, and sometimes in the course of church, we allow the uniqueness to become extinguished as we seek to be accepted, as we seek to be okay, as, as we seek to answer that question, what do I think you think about me? But God doesn't want us to answer that question. He wants us to be fully engaged, fully integrated around the uniqueness of your voice, around my voice. Right. So it's, it's a shame that, that when, when Jesus invests in his guys, this is what he's doing. He's, he's helping them find their voice. He's helping them find their, their convictional clarity. And, and then as they do, he, he sends them out into the world with this with a sense of like, as you go, do with others what I have done with you. Right? And so, and so this is what I want to talk about this morning. In John 14, 6, a, a really central passage for all of us in the church, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And sometimes the thing we're most familiar with can become the thing that we put the least effort into understanding. Let me tell you what I mean in that. that. That verse is filled with metaphors, way and truth and life. If I were to ask you this morning, what is a metaphor? How would you respond? What is a metaphor? There are high school English teachers everywhere who are wringing their hands in misery and groaning right now, feeling like their entire lives have amounted to nothing. Say, say that again. Well, that's a, that's a simile, right? Metaphor. Okay, okay. So, like, that's, a, that's a great start. Let's, you know, expand that. Thank you for your courage, by the way. 
Right on. Yeah, I can I can see them smiling now in the background. Where what what somebody else, come on, help me here. Engage with me. What's a metaphor? Don't just shout it out. Okay, well, there's that comparison piece. Um, uh, a metaphor can be something that is just a simple object that has much broader meaning than that one object does, right? So if I were to say, you know, Jim is a rock, I'm not insulting him. Right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, Pastor Jim is stubborn as a rock or dumb as a rock. I, what would I be talking? I'd be talking about his steadiness, right? I'd be talking about the stability that he brings to relationships in life. That's a metaphor, right? So I think what we've done with this John 14, 6 passage is we've, we've narrowed down our understanding of this. We said Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and the way we think about it is that here I am tethered to this earth. I've got my, you know, three score and ten to live, and then when I die, I can have assurance that I'm going to be with God forever in heaven because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Is that true? Yes, that is true. But we have shortchanged what Jesus is saying in John 14, 6. Because has anybody noticed that Jesus has not died yet in John 14? This is, this is the living Jesus. This is the pre-crucifixion Jesus. This is the Jesus who walked throughout the ancient world in his day, and he affirmed, capital S, salvation. And he affirmed, capital F, faith in people. Did he not? Right? So there's this quality that we have to, oops, that we have to balance, we have to bring some understanding to, to say, yes, it's true, that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, like we sung about this morning in several choruses. But it's also true that Jesus shows us a new way of living as human beings. And I don't believe it's optional that you can have one without the other. In the epistle of 1 John, John, who walked with Jesus, who was shaped firsthand by Jesus, asked this puzzling question to his congregation. He says, how can you say that you love God and yet hate a brother or sister? And when he asked that question, he's not asking for an answer. You do know that, right? There is no answer. He's putting his finger on a false confession. And so part of this journey is like a, a strange thing. is like I have to get tired enough of reaping the patterns of my own instinctive responses to life before I'm willing to embrace this new way of living in Jesus. People who are satisfied with life as it is will continue to live life as it is. Oh, they'll try to color the edges a little bit or, you know, you know what I mean. But change on the level of the spirituality that Jesus is inviting us to only comes in the life of a person who said, enough, 
I'm, I have no more cards to play. I, I know that everything I try to do tends to produce crop failure. I don't have any other answers. What can you do for me, Jesus? That is a very different kind of life. Then all of a sudden, instead of looking at the way that Jesus lays down and, and scoping it out for loopholes, you know what I mean? Well, I know what you say, Jesus, but honestly, this is 2016 and my life circumstances. Do you really understand my life circumstances, Jesus? Like, we, we do this, we navigate it, and it's not that the way of Jesus is complicated. It's very, very straightforward. But the way of Jesus is costly. And you can't fake it. You can't want it and not live in it. And a human being has to be bold enough to say, if I'm not living in it, because I don't want it. There's other options that are more attractive to me. Uh, this metaphor way, then, has breadth to it. Um, if, if I were, like, so my kids are all like, I think my, my baby is 29 now. But imagine with me that, that She's only 16 years old, and I'm teaching her to drive again. Right. And, and she's gotten her license, and as a, a parent, I'm, I'm living on the edge knowing that she's got the license and a 4,000-pound vehicle, but no experience. Right. But she wants to go to Seattle to visit a friend. And, and there's two ways that I can think about this direction, right? I can say... Well, the way to Seattle, Hannah, is to get on I-5 and head north for about 200 miles and take the exit that's appropriate to where you're going and just follow the directions to Amy's house. That's the way, isn't it? That's the way to Seattle. But what if I'm not thinking about that? What if, what if as a dad I'm, I'm saying, you know, when you get in that car, check the mirrors to make sure you've got good visibility. When, when, you, when you get on the highway, um, use your blinkers. Just bless people with an understanding of what you're about to do, right? And then when you get in, I, well, that's what they're there for, right? And, and as you're driving down the highway, don't look at your phone. Don't read emails, don't, don't text. And just because the sign says 65 miles an hour, if the weather is not good, it doesn't mean you have to go 65, Hannah. It's okay to go 50 or 55 if there's fog or if the roads are a little bit dicey, right? Is, is that instruction about the way to Seattle? Like, okay, and if Hannah calls me, eight hours later and says, hey, Dad, the, the sign says, welcome to Snohomish. <laughs> As Hannah's father, what's the first question I'm going to ask her? No, I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't ask her that. That's the first question. That is the instinctive question that I would ask her. Are you all right? Because I know she's going to figure out how to read a map. Get from here to there. I mean, this is just the journey of life. What I want to know as father is that she's all right, that she's safe, that she's well. The way, there's this way of living in Jesus that's not restrictive. It doesn't rob us from abundance of life or value of life. It does not mean that we experience less of life. It is the guidance of my Father and yours to say to you, there's a way to travel this this highway of life that will be the very best for you. We're so full of our own instincts. We're so full of ourselves. We're so full of our preferences. We're so confident in our appraisal that we say thanks but no thanks. And if you have come around tight corners in your life in which you have experienced what I talked about earlier, this sense that, wow, I've lost confidence in my ability to navigate this. And out of that, you've looked up and you begin to listen and respond to this God who in a very straightforward, uncomplicated way lays out a new way of living as a human being and you've begun to experience what that life is, then all of the hard knocks that you went through were a great, great blessing. This is the paradox of this journey of life. It is not success that creates understanding. It's the humility that comes from failing. So a guy asked Jesus. He came to him, and it wasn't with a good attitude. I don't want to pretend here. He wasn't like just a, an even-tempered inquirer. He had an axe to grind. I mean, Jesus was pushing against some foundational things that he had given his life to that had to do with his position and his power and his sense of being in the driver's seat. And so he put his finger into Jesus' chest and he said you tell me rabbi what are the most important commands in scripture because he wanted to trap him he wanted to expose the phoniness of the simplicity of this life that Jesus was laying out how can an itinerant preacher with a group of untrained followers who are living hand to mouth who aren't even educated presume to speak anything about meaningful spirituality? That's the question. And Jesus, without blanking, said, what was the question? Tell me again, what was the question? Tell me again, what was the question? What is the most important commandment? Right? Because in this day, the institutional religious system had extrapolated the Ten Commandments to 632 or 33 commandments that spoke to every single circumstance of life. In almost every decision or choice you made, there was some law that somebody would pin you with and say, and this is how you're supposed to do it. And Jesus says to this man, Okay, there's one. 
It's, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And he, and he says the second is like it. Now, it's not the second, like one and two. It's part one and part two, because in the language that Jesus uses, it's very clear that it's, it's drawn out from the first. It's, it's like you've got the first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus adds this comment that still, it, it makes my head spin because I've got a seminary degree and, and I, I spend time in the Word of God regularly and sometimes I scratch my head with like, I don't understand this sometimes. And Jesus says to me, as he says to you, uh, Bruce, all of God's revelation is fulfilled in a person whose spirituality is defined by this. You are leaving no box unchecked. You're knocking the ball out of the park. And I'm still startled by the simplicity of that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is drawn out of it. It's like that is to love your neighbor as yourself. So I want to understand this. What does it mean to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? I, 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 I've been married for 35 years, so I'm getting a kind of a C- minus in learning how to love my wife. I'm a slow learner. She would, she would probably give me a, a B-. minus. It's been a hard journey, right? It, it's costly to love somebody well. But, but generally, I, here's how you do it. If you, if you love somebody, you listen to them, and you affirm what they're about. Now, if I had connected with Heather early in, the, in life and, and said, you know, I like you and you're lots of fun and, and we love to share things together, activities and interests and stuff, but, you know, really, your life will be amazing if you'll just let me chart the course for you. When you have a question or a decision to make, just look to me. I understand you and I love you and I will shape your way. Right? What do you think the chances of that relationship surviving might be? Wow, unless you're terribly just a dysfunctional wreck of humanity, you would say, run away from him. So I know at least that loving somebody well is about receiving how they reveal themselves and then responding to that. The question then is, how does Jesus speak of God. What is the word that he uses again and again and again? Father! Father! And it's not, it's not a, a colloquial kind of phrase that's, that's just worn out in time and, oh, like, well, it's just another name for God. We just call him Father. It's not that at all. You hear Jesus and, and so many of his stories have to do with who this father is. And, and he uses words like Abba Father, dear Father. The way that a little child would, would respond to a daddy that he, he loves and he trusts, right? It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. And Jesus tells stories like this. He goes like, what human father, when his son asked for a loaf of bread, would give him a stone? And everybody goes, that's wrong and sick. 
Well, you're right, and what human father, when his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? And everybody goes, well, like, no good father. And Jesus says, well, if, a, if an earthly father is that good of a father to his child, imagine how much more your father in heaven is for you. And so as I hear Jesus, this is the gymnastics that start to happen in my mind. When I, when I hear Jesus say, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and I lay it next to his teaching about who Father is, then I hear him with a smile and an invitation say, trust Father. This is how you love him. You trust him. You trust him? Depends on the time of day and the circumstances that you ask me. I think I'm mostly learning to. But as I was sharing with some people yesterday, it's still a terrifying thing for me to put my foot in response into the path of obedience when I know the downside from a human perspective. I still feel that, oh my gosh, kind of moment. So what, what does it mean to, to, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, one of the wackiest pictures I have is when my kids were little. Um, they were probably seven and five and two and a half or three. And Heather had gone away for a women's retreat one weekend. And as, as, as sad as it is, when she'd go away, our house descended into chaos. It's just what happened. So we were playing, and it was just getting increasingly rambunctious. And I said, hey, time out, you guys. Here's, a, here's another, let's do this. Have, have you ever done this? And they go, like, done what, Dad? And they go, like, I'm going to stand three feet behind you. And, and I want you to close your eyes and put your arms on your shoulders like this. And when I say three, I want you to just lean back into me. Not complicated, right? Easy to understand, right? Do I need to explain it again? No, so my oldest one stepped up, and he's just like, he, he cannot not move his feet. He's seven years old, he's, he's the big brother to two little siblings, and he's going to show them how to do it. And I said, Joel, if you move your feet, if I see your leg twitch, I'm going to step back, and you're going to fall onto the floor. He could not, not move his leg. So his little brother moved in there. He's going to figure this out. And it's like his little feet were nailed to the floor. He was not going to move his feet. But I thought he was going to break his neck because he kept spinning his head around like an owl to just make sure Dad was there. And I said, Jeff, if I see you twitch your neck, move your head at all, I'm stepping back and you are going down. And he just starts giggling hilariously. I mean, I, I thought he was going to wet himself, man. I mean, he was just in hysterics. But he could not lean back. And his little sister, two and a half years old, put her hands on her shoulders, closed her eyes on three, just leaned back into me. Because apparently she, she had not lived long enough to know the things that her daddy was capable of doing. <laughs> right? But that picture, the, the moment she did that, her older brother said, me next, me next, me next. And guess what? They did it. And they were saying, they're climbing up on the coffee table and saying, catch me now, Dad. And, the, and that middle one, the crazy one, he's, 
He's 31 years old and he's still crazy. He's, he jumps up on the kitchen counter. There's a hard tile floor and he's going, catch me, Dad. And I'm going like, Jeff, your head's going to split like a watermelon if I don't catch you. I don't care. Catch me, Dad. Right? Are you able to lean into Father? See, think about the things that make you frustrated. Think about the people that make you angry. Think about the circumstances that make you anxious. The way we live in the world is is to learn to arrange the, the circumstances outside of ourselves in ways that will bring the greatest peace. We love to control our world. I'm in recovery. I'm a recovering control freak. And if you And before you laugh too hard, check your pulse right here. Because, like, if you are, if you feel a pulse, you're in it with me. Some, Some are not as clumsy as I am. Some of you are very, very subtle in the way you do it. Right? But we do it. And everybody knows our way. Everybody knows our way. If, if you were to ask a spouse or a friend to say, that guy, he's kind of whacked out this morning, and he said something that just kind of stuck in my craw. He called me a control freak. I don't think I am. But just for grins, if I were to try to get my way, how have you experienced me? What is the method that I use when I find myself getting blocked. Like, if you will ask that question with reassurance that there won't be payback for honesty, you will get the answer. See, you think it's your secret, but everybody around you knows what your deal is. And the center point of this, why this is so important, is because until we trust Father with the anxieties and the fears and the grievances and the frustrations and the disappointments of life and the opportunities in life, we will tend to see the people around us as a means to an end and not as children of God. It turns out if we don't trust Father... We cannot love each other. And so an awful lot of my work seems to be that I sit with pastors or leaders or congregants who are at odds with each other. They can't can't seem to find a way to sit with each other in love. A great part of my frustration is that I live in a world that, look, I know it. I know it that the world out there has as much clarity about the message of Jesus that I've just shared with you. They get it. When people affirm the spirituality of Jesus, what they're affirming is the way of love. They get it. They struggle with how to do it. They don't quite understand. A person who is not at peace with themselves, who does not know the enoughness of Father, cannot live in love with others. We can be nice on the level of Mr. Rogers, 
but we don't love like Jesus. And the world who hears us speak of Jesus does not see behavior in us that reflects that we are walking in the way of Jesus. Right? What's the word that comes to mind when somebody's proclamation does not match their behavior? Hypocrite, right? I've got two black eyes walking out in the world as a pastor and as a denominational leader because I'm sitting right smack dab in the middle of what people find so difficult to understand. It's like, why does the church continue to say it's about love when there's so little evidence of it in our experience? That's a tough deal. That that is a tough deal. And so my heart is to say, look, this thing of faith that Jesus laid down His life for us and has given us forgiveness with the Father, it's as important to understand that the human being who is walking in that forgiveness also has a different way of living as a human being that corresponds increasingly to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to leave behind in his or her life the same patterns that Jesus left behind in his. I think that's the piece that we are kind of struggling with. I think we all embrace the understanding of of the importance of love. But I don't think we know how to do it very well. Part of the thing that's helped me gain understanding is to find enough humility in my life, largely through my own failures, to be able to hear people when they say to me in various ways, um, Bruce, that behavior that I just experienced in you just now, I, I don't know where you learned it, but you didn't learn it from Jesus. I know that. And if you want to take a journey with me, however long it takes, I'll help you. Get your life in line in this way, in this part of your life, with the way of Jesus. And I wish I could say that I welcome that with smiles. I feel mostly like I've been drugged, kicking and screaming through a knot hole that's about 15 sizes too small for me. It's difficult for any human being to let go of the patterns that have defined their lives and sometimes their lives generationally. It's difficult to be misunderstood. It's difficult to feel like you're laying aside power and control in order to embrace the way of Jesus, which is pouring out your life sacrificially for the benefit of others. That's hard. And a human being doesn't do it when they feel like they've still got more cards in their deck. I can still do this. I can still align this source of power. I can still use this to accomplish the life I want. I can do this. Yes, you can. And you should do it. You should play it out. 
until you reach a point of authentically saying, this is painful. The outcome is not what I had hoped for. I don't know what to do, but I need direction. That's humility. And that quality is so much more important than simple cognitive understanding about what the Bible says or even what the Bible says the way of salvation is. Right? Let your life tell the story. When we're reading through the Gospel and we're looking at the way of Jesus, let it be that your, your wife or your husband or your kids see in you a living Jesus, an example of what the words mean. The people at your place of work, the people in your neighborhood, the people at the marketplace. The way of Jesus is the way of love. And the way of love is easy to understand and immeasurably costly. And I think the church doesn't get that. I think somehow we've embraced this consumeristic deal where we believe somehow that this is all about us and it's all about our preferences and it's all about our way and it's all what we want and make me feel good. But we didn't learn that from Jesus. The one I follow, Son of God, had a terrible downward trajectory in his life. Should I expect otherwise? Should I demand otherwise? These are hard questions. But when I talk about the centrality of the church, I'm not talking about right doctrine. I'm not talking about right denomination. I'm talking about a right understanding of the whole point of it all. That to our Father, the church is a place where his kids learn to live like Jesus and love like Jesus. And then as they go, wherever they are, the aroma of their lives, the natural outcourse of their lives, is that they shape people who want to find this Jesus spirituality. They give it to hungry souls. And they sit with them. And they make costly investments with them in order that what they have experienced can be by experienced by others who have a similar hunger for something that means something. And this is the glorious thing of the church. This is just like, what? What? We get to be this presence in the culture, not know-it-alls, but people who love well, who add lift to people's lives, who sit with people long enough to understand their story and validate their story and then move alongside and say, how can I add lift? How can I make your life more meaningful? And my experience is when you are that kind of a person... It's only a short matter of time before people ask you the question, why? Because it's pretty unusual to encounter that kind of a heart. And they will want to know why. And you have a story to tell about the experiential encounter with a father who loves you too much whose enoughness 
is infinite. Is that even a word? It is now. Father, I pray for these people in this particular church and this expression of community. For those who've gotten to the end of themselves who are hungry for the way of Jesus, Lord, would you reveal yourself in ways that their souls can grasp as Father. For those of us who are feeling anxious or afraid or alone or hurting or disappointing or poised with enormous opportunities, as we look to you, would you be so clear about the way through this. You're a father who's never confused. You never scratch your head. You always know what your kids need, individually and collectively. And it's not your way we don't understand. It's our hearts. And so I cry with that man thousands of years ago, Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. Shore me up when I'm nervous about leaning into you. Let me be a man of peace, first of all. Authentically, a man of peace, free from frustration, free from agenda, free from anxiety. A man of peace. And out of the fullness of your way, let me, let these women, let these men be people who have a story to tell a generation that knows way too much fear and way too much frustration, and way too much cynicism. Would you help us, Father? In Jesus' name, amen.